Welcome to Thinking About Religion. I'm Dale Tuggy. You say you're religious. Would you consider traveling across the world in incredibly dangerous conditions in order to convert people to your religion who have little to no familiarity with it? Would you be willing to learn their language? Would you try your hand at composing a learned treatise in their language, trying to enter into their thought world to convince them to believe in your religion? In 1712, an Italian Jesuit priest named Ippolito Desideri set sail for India, his ultimate goal being the mountainous and mysterious land of Tibet. Not only did he make it there, he quickly learned Tibetan and composed a couple of books in which he tried to refute some foundational claims of Tibetan Buddhism and to convince the Tibetans to become Catholic Christians. Through some twists of fate, these were never published in Tibet, as he'd intended, but scholars have increasingly remembered and studied them. In a 2010 book, the Dalai Lama wrote, Although he came originally as a missionary, intent to convert the Tibetans to Christianity, Desideri's experience of immersion in Tibetan culture produced a remarkable and very early testament to interreligious dialogue. I hope that one day a translation and careful study of this important document will be undertaken to make it available to the wider world. Scholars are now making his wish come true. Desideri's works are now being translated into English and added to the sources available for dialogue and debate between today's Christians and Buddhists. My guest today is one of our foremost scholars of historical Buddhism, Dr. Donald Lopez from the University of Michigan, the author of many important books on Buddhism, including Elaboration on Emptiness, The Story of Buddhism, Prisoners of Shangri-La, The Lotus Sutra, a biography, and Buddhism and Science, A Guide for the Perplexed. Together with a Tibetan scholar, Dr. Lopez has recently published Dispelling the Darkness, A Jesuit's Quest for the Soul of Tibet. It contains a new English translation of one of Desideri's short works and a portion of his big unfinished book in which he sought to refute the traditional Buddhist doctrines of rebirth and emptiness. Dr. Lopez, welcome to Thinking About Religion. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Lopez, tell us about these two books of his and how you came to publish this new translation and commentary. So in 1995, I published an edited volume called Curators of the Buddha. This was a volume that brought together a number of essays that considered the European encounter with Buddhism, really in light of Edward Said's classic work, Orientalism, published in 1979. The final essay uh, in that volume was something that I wrote myself called Foreigner at the Lama's Feet, in which I considered a number of foreigners who had studied with Tibet Lamas, including myself. But earlier on in that essay, I talked about Ippolito Desideri, a figure who is uh, almost a hero in the field of Tibetan studies for his remarkable knowledge of the Tibetan language uh, so long ago. And then uh, more recently, I was contacted by an Italian uh, scholar called Enzo Bargiacchi from the town of Pistoia in Tuscany. This is Desideri's hometown. And he asked me whether I would be interested in uh, translating uh, some of Desideri's Tibetan works, which were sitting in the Jesuit archive in the Vatican. I was initially reluctant uh, to take on such a task, but he uh, was quite insistent and was willing to help me uh, get permission to access the text in, in Rome. And so I went ahead and uh, was able to visit Rome, uh, visit the archive, and receive copies of the manuscripts. 
Later on, I happened to see uh, Tupten Jimba. This is the, the great Tibetan scholar who is both a Tibetan geishe, which is the highest uh, academic rank in the Tibetan monastery, and also has a PhD in philosophy from Cambridge. He's been the Dalai Lama's translator for many years. I happened to show him the PDF, which I had on my computer, and he said, we, we must do this together. Uh, so he and I set out to uh, translate uh, at least portions of uh, these massive works, and this resulted in, in the book that we published last year. Wow, so a big international effort there to recover what have become some lost classics, I suppose. Tell us how they became written in the first place. I think this is an amazing story that's worthy of major movie treatment. Yes, there is something almost cinematic about the story, uh, and there are a number of interesting adventures that Desideri goes through. So Desideri was born uh, in Pistoia, this uh, town uh, north of Florence uh, in Tuscany, in 1684. He joined the Jesuit order in 1700, and then uh, after his studies in Rome, he volunteered to become a missionary and to go to Tibet. The Jesuits had had a mission in western Tibet almost a century before the the great Portuguese uh, Jesuit Antonio de Andrade was there. At that time, it took five months to travel from Genoa to India. They had to brave uh, seas and pirates and difficulties along the way, as you can imagine. And one would land on the west coast of India in the town of Goa, which was one of the Jesuit headquarters. So he arrived there in 1713 after the five-month journey and shortly thereafter headed north uh, with another Jesuit, a Portuguese named uh, Manuel Freire, who was his superior. And they went to Ladakh. Ladakh is today uh, in the northern part of India, but at that time it was part of Tibet. They stayed there, began to learn some language, and Desideri was quite satisfied to found their mission there. But for reasons that are unknown to us, Friday insisted that they go on to Lhasa, which was uh, a long journey. And there's been some speculation that, in fact, Friday was also serving as a spy for the Jesuits to see what else was going on there. At any rate, uh, they had quite an adventure getting there. They got lost in a snowstorm. They were rescued by a, a Mongol princess and her entourage who took them to Lhasa where he arrived on March 8th, 1716. Strangely, Father Friday left almost immediately and went back to India, leaving Desideri, at least briefly, as the only uh, European uh, in Tibet at the time. According to his own account, he had an audience with Latsang Khan. This was a Mongol Khan who was uh, kind of the military dictator of Tibet at the time. And Desideri, in his own account, explained his uh, wish to uh, bring the Christian teachings to Tibet. Uh, Latsang Khan allowed him to do so, but encouraged him to learn Tibetan better and arrange for him to study first at a small monastery in Lhasa itself, and later at Sera Monastery, one of the great uh, seats of the Geluk sect uh, located right outside the city. So he studied there. We have his student notes from those days. And we can see that he begins with the kind of textbooks on logic that the little children monks uh, begin studying in Tibet. And he goes all the way through to uh, reading the writings of uh, Tsongkhapa, the founder of the Gelugpa sect from the 15th century. He was there studying in December 1717. Different Mongol army came through Tibet. They assassinated Latsang Khan, who Desideri considered to be his uh, patron. He had to then flee to another region of Tibet where he remained. During this time, things were happening in Rome. And uh, as you know, the various orders of the Roman Catholic Church were assigned different mission fields, different places in the world that the Pope then allowed them to go to spread the gospel. 
So while Desiderio was in Tibet, uh, the Pope decided to take Tibet away from the Jesuits and to give it to the Capuchins. We only remember them, I think, today because uh, it's from their name that we get Cappuccino. Uh, Cappuccino is the color of the robe of the Capuchin monks, and hence the name. Uh. And the Capuchins arrived and said, uh, sorry, uh, we've been uh, told to take over. You have to leave now. Desideri was quite distraught by that, uh, sent some letters back to Rome to request to stay. You can imagine how long correspondence took in those days to get from Lhasa back to Rome. Eventually, he did not receive permission to remain, and on December 15, 1721, he left Tibet. While he was there, he was writing works in Tibetan, and he took all of those with him. By the time he got back to Rome, uh, he arrived in the midst of uh, what was something that was called the Rites Controversy. This is a very interesting moment in the history of the European encounter with Asian religions, in which uh, the question was, do funeral rites and ancestor rites that are practiced, for example, in China, are those religious or not? Matteo Ricci and the other Jesuits in China had argued that these are cultural practices, not religious practices, and that one could convert to Christianity and still be allowed to perform offerings to one's ancestors, because the, the Jesuits were finding that the Chinese were very reluctant to convert if they had to give up so-called ancestor worship. Therefore, Ricci and other Jesuits argued that such rites should be seen as cultural, not religious. Desideri was not aware of all this so much while he was in Tibet, but once he got back to Rome, this was raging. After he left Tibet, he stayed in India for about another five years and did some more missionary work in South India and elsewhere. Arriving back in Europe in 1727, the Capuchins were criticizing him for the failure of his mission. He spent the next five years with lawsuits and arguments against the Capuchins defending himself and died in 1733, I think, uh, quite uh, distraught at his fate. And so because of the suppression of the Jesuits by the church, his works were placed on the index of banned materials. Wow. And therefore, they just, they just languished in the archive for a couple of centuries almost before they were kind of rediscovered and uh, made available to scholars. And so our knowledge of Desideri has come very partially. All Jesuits, when they return from the mission field, are required to write an extensive report, which is called a relation, a relazione in Italian. Desideri wrote a very lengthy report, parts of which were read and known. A great Italian scholar called Luciano Petic did a fantastic collection of the writings of all of the Jesuits to Tibet in Italian. And then more recently, uh, two American scholars, uh, Michael Sweet and Leonard Zwilling, translated Desideri's report, which they translated as a book called, with the title, Mission to Tibet. So we've slowly had portions of his report. An early translation, by the way, uh, took out all the places where Desideri criticized Tibetans. And so those who read his works in English had a much more positive view of Desideri and his relations to Tibetan Buddhism than we have today. But now with Sweet and Zwilling's translation out, and then more recently, uh, Jimba and I were able to translate uh, portions of his great works. Uh, this allowed us to have, uh, I think, a fuller view of this very fascinating scholar. It's a tragedy on several levels. I mean, the man's life work ends up getting banned <laughs> and locked away for a long time until you guys have uh, brought it back into the light of day. And uh, I mean, it looks like an epic uh, screw up for the Roman Catholic Church. 
this guy was a star scholar doing amazing things. And they, I guess for political reasons, did not make use of it. It also makes me think of the engagement between Buddhism and Westerners in the 19th century. So much of the Western treatment of Buddhism was so ham-handed and just kind of misinformed. And people like Desideri were rare that could read the primary sources. And even though he didn't agree with it, actually understand it fairly well. There are a number of tragedies, you're right. One of the other tragedies is, of course, that no Tibetans ever read the works that uh, he wrote for them. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so he carried these works back to Rome, and they were, as far as we know, not read. He says that he showed them to some people. They were very impressed. Tibetans were quite dedicated to recording who was there and what they did and talking about the foreigners who visited. And we have no record in any Tibetan source about Desideri at all. And so that's itself rather interesting. The Jesuits, of course, were always regarded as great scholars, and Ricci, as you know, uh, for example, learned Chinese. Many members of the China mission learned Chinese very well, translating uh, both uh, Chinese classics uh, into Latin, translating uh, geometry, Euclid, uh, into Chinese. And so the Jesuits were known for their skills as translators, but they were missionaries. Their goal was to convert uh, these people to Christianity. At that time, Europeans divided all peoples of the world into four nations, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and idolaters. And so the Chinese, the Tibetans, the the Indians were all idolaters. Desideri, as we can talk about, had a slightly different view of the idolatry of the Tibetans. Uh, He had a particular respect for Tibetans, but their goal was, was, uh, was conversion, and therefore Buddhism, although they didn't use the word, they just called it idolatry, had to be refuted. When we get to the 19th century, we do see some real changes going on. In 1844, the great French scholar Eugène Bernouf translated his massive introduction to the history of Indian Buddhism. And this is a work that really defines Buddhist studies as an academic discipline as we know it today. And my own sense is that the portrait of the Buddha and of Buddhism that Bernouf paints in 1844 hasn't changed that much uh, in the ensuing decades. And so because I'd done some work on Bernouf and really felt that basically once we understand Bernouf, we understand the basic scholarly perspective that we have today, it would be interesting to go back and look at what happened before 1844, from the first mention of Buddhism in a European source by Clement of Alexandria up until Bernouf's magnum opus. So I published a book called From Stone to Flesh about the European encounter with the Buddha during that period. And there, you're correct. You find all sorts of very negative statements about the Buddha. Sometimes they just, you can recognize them as a Buddhist story, which has become garbled. Sometimes you can't. Uh, One that's uh, rather amusing is this story, which we find in all Buddhist texts, that the Buddha was not born by the usual route, but actually emerged from under his mother's right arm, and then took seven steps, and that's a very famous story. We see in Jesuit accounts uh, the statement that the Buddha actually gnawed his way out through his mother's rib cage, which emerged from under her right arm that way, and she died. And of course, the (laughs) Buddha's mother did die in the traditional story seven days after his birth. And so this infant is accused of killing his mother. (laughs) It's the guilt of matricide that then causes him to go off and be seduced by the devil. So there are all sorts of little elements of which we can recognize as being part of the Buddhist tradition, which get a particular spin placed on them by missionaries in order to uh, literally demonize the Buddha. Where did they get the idea that he chewed his way out? 
Well, they couldn't imagine how a child could emerge from under his mother's right arm. And so uh, they figured he must have had his teeth in the womb there and just (laughs) gnawed his way out. And his poor mother died as a result. So, yeah, it's a pretty grisly story. (laughs) Okay, so there's Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and there's paganism, basically, or idolatry. Correct. He doesn't think he's going off to study one of the, quote, great world religions because that whole framework didn't exist in anybody's mind at that time. No, that term was not coined until much, much later, yeah. Yeah, Even Buddhism wasn't a current term back then. But they had an idea of the religion of Tibet as a distinctive entity. What was the main thing that he would call it? He just called it the the religion of the Tibetans, and he referred to the Buddha as the lawgiver of the Tibetans. You know, thinking about Moses as a lawgiver, as a founder, and so uh, he often talks about this religion having its own lawgiver, and he tells the story of the Buddha in that context. And he always uses Tibetan names for all of the figures. He calls the Buddha Shakyatuba, which is his name instead of Shakyamuni, as he would be known in Sanskrit. So his knowledge of the connection between the Indian origins of Buddhism and its placement in Tibet, of course, was something that was not understood at that time very well. So he's really talking about the Tibetans' religion. When thinking about religion returns, Dr. Lopez and I discuss religious diversity and religious debates. Dr. Lopez, in our day, many scholars have suggested that all religions are equally valid in the sense that one can attain salvation, or at any rate, the end goal of religion, whatever that's supposed to be, through following any of these great traditions. What would Desideri say about claims like that? He would reject them uh, quite adamantly. He believed, as all Roman Catholic missionaries did, that there's only salvation through Christ, and that those who do not embrace the Christian faith will be doomed to hell. Now, of course, we have to recognize that Buddhists would hold a similar, perhaps not quite an extreme view. That is, Buddhists believe, if you were to ask any Tibetan scholar, they would say that only Buddhism provides liberation from rebirth. Other religions have their own ethical systems, and based on following those ethical systems, one can be reborn as as a human or a god. But liberation from the cycle of rebirth is only available through Buddhism, and they would say a particular form of Buddhism. And so, from that perspective, Desideri and a Tibetan geshe would not be that different in their perspective about their own religion and other religions. Desideri does, at the beginning of his uh, refutation of of rebirth, his, his magnum opus that remained unfinished, begin with a very interesting discussion of the study of other religions. He's basically trying to convince his Tibetan audience that there is value in studying Christianity. His basic idea is almost anticipating the famous dictum of Friedrich Max Müller, that he who knows one knows none. That is, one must know about more than one religion to understand a single religion. Desideri says that it's always better to have a a second uh, butter lamp in one's room. It provides twice the illumination. A ring is more beautiful if it has a second jewel. A tree grows more broadly if it can 
receive both rainfall and uh, water from a nearby stream. And so he's talking about the ways in which knowledge of more than one religion can enhance the knowledge of one's own without at that point really making any claim about which is true and which is false. He then goes on to say that uh, even to study a false religion when one knows that one's own religion is true is helpful. And he says that, for example, one can take things that are less valuable than gold, uh, like iron and wood, and you can use those things to make a shovel, which allows you to find more gold. And so he has quite ingenious and often rather poetic arguments for the value of studying other religions. But as we get further and further on into the text, he makes it clear that he feels that Tibetan Buddhism will lead the Tibetan people to perdition and that there's only salvation to be found in the Christian religion, or what he calls the religion of the star heads is the term that he uses. Yeah, explain that term for us. That's actually in the title of the main book that we'll talk about. The Tibetan language has many homonyms words that uh, sound exactly the same but are spelled differently. And at the time that Desideri traveled to Tibet, foreigners, and especially Europeans, were called Gogar. Gogar, in the standard spelling, means someone who has a white head or white skin. But the word Gar, with a different spelling, can also mean star. So when we first looked at the uh, title of his work, in which he says, a work offered uh, by the star head Lama Ippolito to the Tibetan people, we thought, oh, he's misspelled the name. How, how did he make this spelling error even in the title of his book? But he makes the exact same quote-unquote error throughout, which makes it clear that this was not an error but was intentional. He wanted to use a term that would mean something to Tibetans, that they would notice the spelling, and to talk about Christianity as the religion of the starheads, presumably evoking the halos of, of the saints uh, or something like that. He never explains it, but that's the term he uses consistently. He's very clever with his terminology throughout these books that we're going to talk about. But going back to the whole thing about being a missionary and, and conversion, in our day, sometimes people assume that a missionary must despise the people that he's trying to missionize simply because he thinks that they're mistaken in their religious views. As you read him, does Desideri despise or admire the Tibetans or both? I think he admires Tibetans and he ultimately despises their religion, but has, I think, also some respect for it. So he had, of course, arrived in India and spent some time there and therefore had had some exposure to Hinduism. And he often refers to the Hindus, of course, the term was not used, as the idolaters of Hindustan. And he talks about their multi-headed, multi-armed gods and how grotesque these deities are. And he says that the Tibetans are idolaters, but they are a better kind of idolater uh, than the, those in Hindustan, as he calls India. Because he's lived in the monastery and he's seen the very deep commitment to reasoning, philosophy, and logic in the Tibetan monastic academy. He's read the texts, uh, he's seen the monks debate, and he realizes that uh, the Tibetan scholar is someone who believes in argumentation and its power, who believes in philosophy and its power. And therefore, he comes up with a remarkable strategy for conversion, I think, which is rather unusual in the history of Christian missionaries. He found that going to individual people, telling them about the gospel, baptizing them, these things were not working in Tibet. And in general, the uh, Tibet mission over the centuries, whether it was the Jesuits or, or Capuchins, was not very successful. But through his study, he came to the conclusion that Tibetan Buddhism was based on two philosophical doctrines, rebirth and emptiness. 
And therefore, he felt that if he could write a text that could refute rebirth and could refute emptiness, he could write that text in Tibetan, of course, present it to Tibetan scholars, engage them with disputation and argumentation, convince them that his argument refuting these two foundations was correct, then because he'd seen the Tibetan commitment to reason and logic, the masters of Tibet, that is, the religious masters, the monks and lamas and geishas, would convert to Christianity. And because of the great respect that the Tibetan people have for their monks and lamas, the entire population would convert. And so he really felt that a conversion of Tibet could occur through philosophy. And I think that was quite a, of course, an utter failure, but a remarkable idea of his. What he admired about the Tibetans was their commitment to reason and argument and their just general intelligence. Absolutely, yes. He, he had, I think, uh, of course, living in the monastery, I think he had many monks who were his friends. Sadly, he doesn't mention names so much, and so it's hard for us to know exactly who these were. But if, if he was living in Sarah Monastery, he must have had someone as a Tibetan teacher because his Tibetan became quite good very quickly, almost miraculously good. Therefore, uh, he must have had close relationships with the monks in the monastery during his time there. Yeah. Now, his main book, which you translate a small portion of in the book that we're talking about today, his main book was entitled Inquiry Concerning the Doctrines of Previous Lives and Emptiness Offered to the Scholars of Tibet by the Starhead Lama called Ippolito. In your view, did this start off as his notes for a face-to-face -face debate that never happened? Uh, no, I think he saw this as sort of his, his masterwork. Uh, I think this is what he imagined would be the work that he would present to the scholars of Tibet, as the title suggests, and they would read it and they would convert. And so it's difficult to know how much actual argumentation orally that he had with Tibetan monks. As you know, you've seen the, so the very famous scenes of, of monks debating on the courtyard, slapping their hands, and uh, this, this very yeah. sort of colorful uh, practice that is, is actually one of the main forms of education in, in the monastery uh, in Tibet traditionally. Whether he actually engaged in that or not, we don't know, and we, and it may be the case, which is often often happens, that his ability to write and read Tibetan was maybe better than his ability to speak. And so we have no evidence, one way or the other, of his actually debating with people. He does say that he showed some of these texts to Tibetan scholars who were impressed by them. But again, we have to remember that his own account that he writes for Rome has to be self-serving. He's trying to defend himself uh, against his critics and, and to exalt the success of his mission. And so whether that's the case or not, it's difficult for us to know. As I mentioned, we have no Tibetan confirmation of anything that Desideri did. Hmm. Now, toward the end of the book, you mentioned that he claims that he had the favor of a Tibetan ruler and uh, that there was some talk of a debate, but then this man was assassinated by the, was it the Mongols? Right. He was himself a Mongol and another Mongol tribe came in and, and, and assassinated him. But the Mongol Khan uh, did say he wanted to arrange a debate between Desideri and a Tibetan scholar, but Desideri needed to learn Tibetan better. And so that's why he sent him to the monastery to study. 
That's an ancient tradition, I know, with Indian rulers, at least, to sometimes have court debates, for instance, between a Hindu and a Buddhist or a Jain and a Buddhist. Um, sounded like there was an idea to do that, but it didn't occur. Yes. Yeah, so uh, in, in Buddhism, there are many stories uh, about uh, Buddhist logicians uh, debating with, uh, with Hindu acharyas. Uh, the Buddha himself converted many, quote-unquote, Hindus, at least according to the stories, it's interesting in Tibetan paintings, we'll often have a, a painting of, of Dharmakirti, for example, who's considered one of the great Buddhist logicians. And at the bottom of the, uh, of the painting, there will be a, a man in a, in a dhoti shaving his head because the way that things worked in traditional Indian debate, that if you debated with uh, another master, if you won, not only did he have to convert to your religion, but all of his followers had to convert. And so in the stereotypical representation of, of, of the Hindu master, he always sort of has the long dreadlocks, that we, uh, which we associate with the sadhu. And of course, the Buddhist monk has the shaved head. And so you often see a, a man sitting in the corner weeping as he, as he shaves his, his long dreadlocks off because he's just lost his, deb- his debate with Dharmakirti. So yes, there is this, this, this tradition of debate uh, is, uh, is very famous uh, in, in Buddhism in general, and of course going back to India, yes. I know that some Westerners will be surprised to hear about this. They have the, the idea that Easterners are mystical and sort of woolly-headed and not as logical and interested in truth and things like that, and interested in argument and reason. Like what, they debate religions with Hindus? Both Hinduism and Buddhism have very sophisticated philosophical systems uh, with traditions of, of logic and debate and reasoning. Uh, there's a lot of work being done now uh, on on both religions and has been done actually for a century in the Western Academy. So uh, this whole idea of the, you know, just that, that uh, Asian religion is just meditation is, is utterly false. Yeah. Western philosophers in, in English-speaking countries are now working quite a bit on classical Indian philosophy, Chinese philosophy, and and religion and so on. And yeah, it's as philosophical as any religious traditions have ever been, I think. Absolutely. When thinking about religion returns, we talk about the Buddhist doctrine of emptiness and Desideri's objections to it. When Desideri was arguing against these core Buddhist doctrines, these two that he focuses on, trying to convince them of Catholic doctrines, was he just demanding that they switch their allegiance, that they just put their faith in Christian sources like the Bible or the Catholic Church, or was he doing something more sophisticated to draw them in? It was quite sophisticated. I mean, I, I think that basically he was trying to convince them that rebirth and emptiness were wrong, philosophically speaking, that they were illogical and untenable, in part because both rebirth and emptiness uh, in Buddhist doctrine deny the existence of, a, of an uncaused cause, of a prime mover. And as a good uh, Aristotelian, a good, a good uh, Thomist, uh, of course, Desideri was was steeped in in the works of Aquinas and and of Aristotle, and therefore he felt that if he could show the Tibetans that there must be a first cause, 
there must be a prime mover, then they would have to concede the existence of God. And once they concede the existence of God, then he would have won the debate. So it really wasn't so much, uh, at least in the in the, the work that we're talking about, the refutation of rebirth and emptiness that he talks about Christianity. He's really trying to undercut the philosophical foundations of, of Buddhism and leaving the only possible conclusion to that refutation to be the idea of God. Right, yeah, and the arguments get quite difficult. There are echoes of Aquinas' first way and his fourth way from his famous proofs for the existence of God, and I can just hear the graduate students hunched over their texts trying to make sense of some of these arguments that he's presenting. I'm sure the Tibetans would have uh, enjoyed grinding through them and showing what was wrong with them in their view. They they would have, and and Desideri, he commanded the Tibetan philosophical vocabulary quite well. And this is one of the remarkable achievements of, of his work, that he learned an entire philosophical system. He learned how to write about it, how to talk about it, using the huge philosophical vocabulary of Buddhism quite accurately and precisely. So this is something amazing about the work. It's clearly not written by a native speaker of Tibetan, but his Tibetan is very good, and he uses the argumentative form of Buddhist logic quite well. The other thing that he does, which I think Jimba and I found amazing, was that uh, he, he quotes Tibetan texts, he quotes Buddhist texts to refute Buddhism. So he actually learned, uh, he saw in the readings of Tsongkhapa, the founder of the, the Geluk sect, uh, the, the sect of the monastery where he was living, he read his most famous work, uh, found all sorts of citations from Indian sources, both uh, sutras and, and uh, shastras there. He then very selectively uses those quotations at just the right moment, from his perspective, to show the problems with the Buddhist position. Sometimes he also will take these quotations and just change them and represent them as his own. But the fact that he uses Buddhist works, uh, even by Nagarjuna and Chandrakirti, the great masters of, of the Indian tradition, in order to promote his view of Christianity and his reputation of Buddhism, I think is, is quite amazing. There's a long tradition of that in Roman Catholic tradition. I've read books written in the 1100s, the 1200s, where Catholic apologists, you know, basically uh, Dominicans oftentimes, they're trying to use the Quran to argue against Islam, and they're trying to use the Talmud to argue against Judaism. I mean, if you're going to have an argument with somebody, you have to get a hold of something that they agree with. You know, you can't just say, well, I think this. They say, I think that. There has to be some kind of common ground. And you could try to find that common ground in reason and experience, or you could try to find it in the other guy's source. Exactly. And I think that comes through uh, one of the most fascinating parts of his text is the opening poem. Many, many Buddhist texts begin, in the Tibetan case, with a long poem to the Buddha. Desideri writes such a poem, and unless you know that this was written by this Italian Roman Catholic missionary, it reads just like a poem to the Buddha. It's only when you get to a certain couple of points where he says, for example, you give your blood every day, that we, we can <laughs> guess that he's really, this is really a poem to Jesus Christ. And even from the point of view of the Jataka stories of the Buddha's previous lives or some tantric ritual, the giving of blood is not unknown, even, even in Tibetan Buddhism. And so he writes this poem with such skill that it can be both about the Buddha and about Jesus simultaneously. Of course, his intention is exactly to do that. He pulls it off quite well. Let's talk a little bit about this doctrine of emptiness. It's metaphysical and difficult, but 
Uh, he meant to refute this in the big unfinished work that we've been talking about, but he didn't get around to the, the emptiness part, right? Correct. But you also translate a much shorter work called The Essence of the Christian Religion, which is, I guess, uh, basically it's a Catholic catechism that he came up with. Correct, yeah. In a Q&A format. And in that book, he tries to refute emptiness. So can you explain what emptiness is, or at least how it was understood at this time, and sort of the main thrust of his objections to it? Emptiness, uh, or shunyata in Sanskrit, is the central doctrine of the Madhyamaka school, the middle way school of Indian philosophy that we associate particularly with the philosopher Nagarjuna. And basically, Nagarjuna is arguing that we imagine that the objects of our experience have a kind of intrinsic nature, a kind of independence, a kind of autonomy, which is in fact utterly absent from them that we project onto things and, and onto ourselves a kind of reality that is not there. This word swabhava in Sanskrit literally means own being. They lack that. We might say in a, in a more Western philosophical discourse that there is, he would say there is no thingness of the thing. Mm-hmm. To imagine the thingness of the thing is a form of ignorance. And so basically, emptiness is taking the idea of no self, which is so central to all Buddhist uh, philosophy, the idea that there is no permanent soul, there is no enduring self, there's nothing that goes from lifetime to lifetime, and taking this idea of self and understanding it as something more abstract, as some intrinsic nature, some independence, and arguing that because we imagine things to be more real than they actually are, we become attached to them, we hate them, and the entire realm of rebirth then follows from that basic ignorance. So in fact, everything from the guardian's point of view is empty. Everything lacks that quality of independence. Everything lacks that intrinsic nature. And so it's not that things don't exist. They just don't exist the way we imagine them to. They're empty of that false nature which we ascribe to them, which we project onto them. And emptiness is therefore the ultimate nature of reality. Emptiness itself is also empty, which is another issue for Desideri. But that's the basic uh, idea of emptiness as it's understood in Tibet at Desideri's time, especially in the monastery where he studied and within that particular sect of Tibetan Buddhism. So the things that appear to us as real objects all around us actually kind of, it's too crude to say they're only thought to exist. They describe them as having conventional reality. It's dependent upon our unenlightened viewpoint, basically. They would say that nothing is independent, everything is dependent, and they would say that things depend on, for example, an effect depends on its cause. A whole, W-H-O-L-E, depends on its parts, and everything depends on the consciousness that designates it, that names it. And so in the Madhyamaka school of Nagarjuna, he's not saying that everything is like a dream. He's not saying that that nothing exists. He's saying that things don't exist in in the way that they appear. They exist as designations, they exist as conventions, and therefore they function. There is causality, there is virtue, there is rebirth. Nagarjuna famously said, for whom emptiness is possible, everything is possible. For whom emptiness is impossible, nothing is possible. What he meant by that is that if things were as as concrete and as solid and as immovable as we imagine them to be, as real as we imagine them to be, change and transformation would not be possible. But because things lack this sort of concrete nature that we imagine them to have, everything is possible. And so it's very important to note, and this is a very important point in the Gelukpa sect where Desideri studied, the reality of the external world and of ourselves is not being denied. It's simply that we exist only as designations, only as conventions. 
and we are all empty of intrinsic existence. Doesn't that mean that our reality as, as objects depends on a lesser viewpoint? So suppose there were only enlightened beings, would there still be these objects? In Buddhism, the external world, uh, our bodies, these are all created by karma. They're mm -hmm. created by our past actions. And so hypothetically, at the point when everybody is enlightened and no one's creating karma anymore, the, the physical universe ceases to exist. There's no point for that to exist anymore. Again, however, it's important to say that emptiness is not denying causality, because if there's no causality, there's no path to enlightenment. So, as the Dalai Lama likes to say in, in the Madhyamaka, in the Middle Way School, things barely exist. They almost don't exist, but they do exist on, on this conventional level. So, Desideri, he had no problem with talking about the contingent nature of the things of this world. Uh, he was fine with the Buddhist uh, presentation of that. He had no objection to uh, the idea of emptiness in general. What he objected to was the Buddhist claim that everything is empty, that even emptiness is empty. Mm. He basically wanted to argue that, uh, yes, the things of this world may be contingent, but that whole idea of contingency only makes sense if there's something that is not contingent. This whole idea that everything is dependent doesn't make any sense unless there's at least something that is independent. And so he takes one of the most famous Buddhist metaphors, which is that of the, uh, the, called the moon in water. And it's basically the fact we have a cloudless night uh, with a full moon. Uh, we're standing at a, by a pond. There's no breeze. The water is completely calm, no ripples, completely flat. And the moon is reflected perfectly in the surface of that water. According to some version of the story, a monkey's uh, in a tree, uh, with the, goes to an overhanging branch, wants to reach out and grab that moon, he falls in and drowns. Mm. So the moon and water is an example of something that appears to be real but is not. Mm -hmm. It's something that we are deceived to think is real, and it isn't. And because of that deception, in the case of the monkey, one suffers because of that. So the Buddhist position would be that everything is like that. Everything is like a moon and water. Everything appears one way and exists another way. Desideri accepts that metaphor. He describes this accurately, but he says that the entire idea of a false moon only makes sense if there's a real moon somewhere. That there can only be a reflection of the moon in water if there's a real moon in the sky. And therefore, he wants to then completely accept the contingency of the things of this world, but only if there is a real moon, only if there is something that is, is independent. And the point, obviously, is that, therefore, God exists. There has to be something that isn't in any way dependent. The whole chain of dependent realities can't be all there is. He thinks that's impossible. This is Aquinas' first way. Exactly, right. So it's impossible, but he also wants to say to the Tibetans that all of your language about everything is dependent, everything is empty— these terms don't make any sense unless there's something that is not empty, if there's something, unless there's something that is independent. And so he's using Aquinas, obviously, throughout, but he's also trying to point out to them that these very categories themselves are nonsensical without their opposite. When thinking about religion returns, Desideri's objections to the famous Buddhist doctrine of rebirth
Dr. Lopez, as you explain in this big book, he also focuses on the Buddhist doctrine of rebirth. So what is that doctrine and what are some of Desideri's objections to it? So the Buddhist doctrine of rebirth is absolutely fundamental to the tradition. It states that we've all been reborn without beginning, that we've all been reborn millions and billions of times in the past, that we are propelled from one lifetime to the next by our karma, by our past actions. And karma is essentially in Buddhism a natural law, which states that virtue leads to happiness in the future, and non-virtue or sin, negative deeds, lead to suffering in the future. Now, exactly what virtue and sin mean in Buddhism is, is laid out in great detail. The idea is that it's the deeds that we do that produce the experiences of our daily life, that all suffering from war to a, a hangnail is a result of something negative that we did in the past, either individually or collectively. Everything that happens to us that's good, from winning the lottery to just feeling happy, all of this is the result of virtuous deeds that we did in the past. But this happiness and suffering also plays out in rebirth, so that in Buddhism, one could be reborn in one of only six places. You can be a god. Gods are a bit like the Greek gods. They have powers over weather and giving boons to the faithful. Right, but they're trapped in samsara as well. They're trapped in samsara as well. So they have long lives, they have happy lives, but they will die in the god realm but be reborn someplace else. There's a demigod realm of kind of lesser gods. There's humans, there's animals, there's ghosts, and there are the hells. And the Buddhists have a very elaborate system of eight hot hells and eight cold hells and various neighboring hells. So basically, according to one's past deeds, one suffers or has pleasure in these six places. One's lifespan is set by one's karma. All the experiences of one's life are set by one's karma. And so rebirth is just part of that cause and effect system. Desideri had a number of objections to it. His most important philosophical objection was that it has no beginning. The Buddha was famously asked, does rebirth have a beginning? And he refused to answer the question. Later, Buddhist philosophers would confirm that there is no beginning to rebirth, that we've all been reborn endlessly or beginninglessly. Mm. The Buddha has a, a famous metaphor in which uh, he talks about a, a man who is uh, walking through a forest. He is struck out of nowhere by a poison arrow. He knows it's a poison arrow. He knows he's going to die soon. The Buddha says, as the man is dying, does he look at the arrow and think, I, I wonder what kind of bird the feather on this arrow came from. I wonder what kind of tree uh, the shaft of this arrow was made from. He says, the Buddha says, these are ridiculous questions. They, they have no point. The point is to get the arrow out of your body as soon as possible so you don't die. So the Buddha said that all questions about beginnings are like such questions. They're of no benefit to us, and therefore he refused to answer them. Right. But later, Buddhist philosophers said the cycle of rebirth is without beginning. So again, as a good Thomist, Desideri could not accept this. It's impossible for there to be any sort of system of causation without a first cause, and therefore there must be God. He has other problems with the doctrine of karma, which is that he feels that, that it's wrong that one would experience happiness in this lifetime as a result of one's deeds. For him as a Christian, this lifetime is a veil of tears, and one's reward comes only in heaven. 
And so he has both moral and, I think, more importantly, philosophical problems with the doctrine of rebirth. He also then offers some criticisms to this whole idea of the incarnate Lama, like the Dalai Lama, the Tulku system, which he also finds uh, problematic in many ways. So this long text, uh, which is refuting rebirth and emptiness, as, as you mentioned, he never finished it. He didn't even get to the emptiness part, and he didn't even finish the rebirth part. So even at 400-some pages of pretty tiny handwriting, which we assume was his own handwriting, he doesn't get to the end. And so someone needs to go back and translate this entire text at some point. But it's clear that he has a multitude of objections to the entire doctrine of rebirth. And he goes into such detail about it, I think, because it's so central to the tradition. In the kind of modern Buddhism that we often see espoused today, people would want to say you can be a Buddhist without believing in rebirth. I think most Tibetan Buddhists would dispute that uh, quite vociferously, and Desideri, I think, understands the importance of rebirth to the tradition, or he wouldn't have spent so many pages in trying to refute it. One of his moral concerns has to do with just the person who gets the benefit or, if I could say it this way, the punishment from a deed isn't the person who actually did it. This is a discussion that goes way back in Buddhist philosophy, doesn't it? At least to the Abhidharma literature. How can there be rebirth if there isn't a soul or a self that connects all these lives into the life of one person? This is an interesting objection, don't you think? Absolutely. So, you know, when I teach my introduction to Buddhism class at University of Michigan, I can judge uh, the success of my lectures. I can almost set my watch by the point uh, in the class when a student raises their hand and says, how can there be rebirth if there's no self? And this is exactly, as you say, a perennial problem for the tradition. If there's no self, if there's no soul, if there's nothing in the mind or body that lasts longer than an instant, how is it possible for one to die and be reborn and there to be some some continuity there, that it's somehow, quote-unquote, the same person? There's a famous text called The Questions of Melinda, in which a Greek king asks a Buddhist monk called Nagasena that very question, and Nagasena says that it's like uh, lighting one candle from another. Uh, You can have uh, a candle that's lit, and next to that a candle that's unlit, and you can light one candle from the other without the same flame going between those two candles. That is, the flame is simply a process of oxidation. It's constantly changing, and yet that movement is possible. In the same way, consciousness, which is just a series of moments without there being anything that lasts longer than an instant, nonetheless has continuity, and therefore consciousness, just as that flame can go from one candle to the next, consciousness can move from one body to the next, that is, die and be reborn, without that consciousness being identical. So, whether one accepts that argument or not, that's typically what Buddhists say, but this whole question of the self and rebirth is one that Buddhists have struggled with throughout the entire tradition, uh, so much so that I think this is one reason why the whole idea of rebirth becomes uh, problematic for some of its Western adherents. So the kind of continuity between one life and another life, it's the same kind of mental events, basically, which are also causally connected. So in Donald Lopez's next life, then, it's not that his soul got a new body, it's that the mental states that were occurring in what we call Dr. Donald Lopez, um, they had some effects in the universe, and similar mental events were then occurring in this, this thing that we're calling your next life. Is that accurate? That's correct. And so it's, it's not the case that, that all is one. Now, when people think about rebirth, they immediately think of the interesting way they have of picking the next Dalai Lama. 
Can you briefly describe that and talk about Desideri's reactions to it? Yeah, so Tibetan Buddhism has a, a phenomenon which is not found uh, outside the Tibetan Buddhist world, and that world extends beyond the borders of Tibet, of course, uh, and that is the idea of the incarnate lama or the tulku. Uh, this is the idea that spiritually advanced beings are not driven by the same winds of karma that we are, that they're able to choose their place of rebirth and to continue their work, their compassionate deeds for the sake of others. So the idea is that there are people like the Dalai Lama who will die. They will leave some indication often to their disciples where they might be reborn. The disciples go and consulting various oracles and other means, uh, find a child, uh, often a two or three-year-old toddler, and they will be able to identify through a series of tests that this is the next incarnation of, the, of their teacher. We know about this in the case of the Dalai Lama. He's the most famous of such tulkus or incarnate lamas. But in Tibet, uh, there were about 3,000 lines of such, of such lamas. They were very important figures. It was really a way for a religion that was so heavily monastic and where monasteries and monks had such power to pass on property and charisma from one lifetime to the next in a system that is celibate. That is, monks don't have sons to inherit things, and so they actually come back themselves as the same person in one sense or another. So Desideri was very well aware of this, uh, this practice. Uh, he met many of these children and was very impressed by their demeanor, their composure, their seriousness, so much so that he felt that these were not frauds, that there was no way that this could be faked. And therefore, he concluded that this was the work of the devil, that the devil had somehow possessed these children in such a way that they could uh, you know, be so composed at age two or three and sit on a throne and not move and, and be so dignified. So one of the refutations that he includes in his work is to talk about this phenomenon of uh, these children remembering their past lives and, and, and why that's ultimately impossible. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. He makes the point that why should the kid remember these little personal effects and forget the Dharma, uh, which should be so much more important, the thing that they had previously devoted their life to learning. Exactly. So that's very commonly said. So Desideri is quite right in, in his, in his uh, at least, description there, because when a child is found, when the Dalai Lama is found, for example, they would bring a teacup that had belonged to the previous Dalai Lama and another teacup. Uh, they would bring a walking stick that had belonged to the previous Dalai Lama and another walking stick. They placed this in front of the child and asked him to choose the one that was, quote-unquote, his. And the Dalai Lama, the current Dalai Lama, did that. Uh, previous Lamas have done that. But at the same time, the child will not remember any of the prayers that he learned, any of the philosophy that he had studied for his entire previous life. And when Tibetans are asked about this, they said, well, the trauma of birth is so great that it just erases the memory of doctrine. And Desideri is saying, if these were such great saints, why do they not remember a pear, but they can remember a teacup? Uh, he finds something that just seems rather banal about all that. And so yeah. this is not so much a philosophical argument. He's just sort of saying that if your religion is really as powerful as it is, if these are really great saints, why do they have to be reeducated in every single lifetime? Right. Yeah. Dr. Lopez, as you discuss in this book and a number of places, Desideri strove to adapt Catholic Christianity to Tibetan Buddhist culture and language, and you translate some fascinating examples of this. I was wondering if you could read for us your translation of Desideri's Tibetan rendering of the Apostles' Creed. Yes. So in the traditional rendering, it's a rather compact statement, and it goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty 
Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. He expands this in most interesting ways using terms that would make sense to his audience. So let's hear your translation, Dr. Lopez. I believe from the depths of my mind in the self-existent jewel, the precious Father, endowed with immeasurable and unsurpassed glory, who brought into being out of nothing the heavens and the earth, together with all that is. In His only Son, Lord Jesus Christ, our venerable Lord, that through the miracle of the unsurpassed power of the unsurpassed pure mind, He entered and was formed in the womb of His celibate mother, without being tainted by any fault, and was born from the ever-good Mary, who was completely without the fault of unchastity that under the terrifying rule of Pontius Pilate he underwent a great many powerful and harsh feelings of suffering. He was nailed to the wood of the cross with iron nails, died, and was placed in a tomb, that he went to the realm of hell, that after he died, when the third day arrived, the body in which he had died, leaving nothing, came back to life without feelings of suffering or signs of decay, that he went into the realm of the heavens and sits on the right side of the Father, the self-existent jewel, endowed with immeasurable and unsurpassed power, that in order to carry out the law for the living and the dead at the time of the end of the world, he will come from the realm and the right side of the Father. I believe with all my thoughts in the unsurpassed pure mind and the pure Catholic Church, in the coming together of the roots of virtue gathered by pure beings, that all infractions are rejected by the power of repair and subdued and dispelled by immeasurable compassion, that at the end of time of the world, all humans will encounter the physical body in which they died in the past, and in that, without lacking consciousness, they will rise again and have eternal life of perfect and complete enjoyment of the unsurpassed final aim without reversal and without end. Amen. Very interesting. People who know a lot about Buddhism will, I think, understand some of his word choices there. I just wanted to ask you, Dr. Lopez, about his elaboration that at the end time of the world, all humans will encounter the physical body in which they died in the past, and that, without lacking consciousness, they will rise again. The idea of resurrection isn't something that really fits in Buddhist thinking, is it? No, not at all. And uh, he has to talk about that quite a bit uh, in the catechism to, of course, the catechism is is, is a only a hypothetical dialogue. Of course, he's playing both parts as, as he writes the text. But the fact that he talks so much about physical resurrection indicates, I think, that the Tibetans found that a hard idea to understand. And it's partly because of the whole background of rebirth. Exactly. The, the old Indian assumption that there's constant rebirth according to karma. Yeah, why would you come back in the same body? That makes no sense. Who would want that body back anyway? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the book is called Dispelling the Darkness, A Jesuit's Quest for the Soul of Tibet. Dr. Donald Lopez, thank you for talking with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Religions compete with one another for our allegiance. 
Those competitors in today's religiously diverse marketplace could learn some things, I think, from Desideri's writings. Namely, that one who seeks to persuade must respect and must learn how to speak like and, in a sense, even to think like those whom he would seek to convert. No doubt Desideri died thinking that his mission had been an utter failure. But the interreligious conversations that he took part in are very much alive. This week's thinking music has been the track Nitinitya Vastu Viveka by Ars Sonor. <laughs>